When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM, let's create. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. We all need a break from the constant cycle to learn something new, to gain new perspectives. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects or pick up a new hobby. I've been enjoying the Great Courses Plus while researching this season of Flashback. Lectures like Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime, History of the Supreme Court, and Battlefield Europe have helped me connect the dots on several stories from history. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited-time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up now through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash O-Z-Y thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. It was the rant that launched a movement, and it began on a cable television news segment. How many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills? Raise their hand. At CNBC's Rick Santelli on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade in February 2009, He's upset about the Obama administration's plan to spend $75 billion of taxpayer money to rescue homeowners underwater on their mortgages as a result of the financial crisis. President Obama, are you listening? You, you wanna... We're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. Two months later, on April 15th, Tax Day, more than 750 so-called tea parties were held across the country. Some drew crowds in the thousands. This is real. These people are here and they're here to stay. It's now been 10 years since the Tea Party movement engineered a surprising takeover of American politics. Santelli's rant and the resulting protests, along with a mysterious political action group called Americans for Prosperity, would shift the political landscape in Washington. CNN is now ready to make a major projection. Uh, the Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives. 
During the 2010 midterm election, the Republican Party, fueled by the energy of the new Tea Party movement, picked up a net gain of 63 seats in the House of Representatives, the largest swing in more than 60 years. But the Republicans' triumph in the House really began more than a century earlier, with another house, a little house on the prairie. Thanks for joining me again on Flashback, a podcast from Ozzy. I'm Sean Braswell. In today's episode, we explore the intersection of art and politics with the story of a remarkable mother and daughter duo who remade children's literature in America and helped kickstart a new political era in the process. It's a tale of hidden authorship, subversive ideology, and of course, that indomitable American frontier spirit. Little House on the Prairie, an unforgettable tale of pioneer life on the American frontier in all of its grit and glory. About 60 million copies of the Little House books by Laura Ingalls Wilder have been sold since the first one came out in 1932. And the stories have inspired millions of children and adults around the world. The first Little House book is set in Wisconsin. Laura was born in Wisconsin. This is Christine Woodside, a journalist and the author of Libertarians on the Prairie. The Little House books are based on Laura Ingalls Wilder's own childhood on the prairie. The first book was called Little House in the Big Woods. In Wisconsin, they owned property. They lived near a town called Pepin, which is situated on a section of Mississippi River that widens and is known as, as Lake Pepin. Today, there's a replica cabin located on the side of the highway in the rough spot where their actual cabin stood but it was a very wooded area. It was a sparsely populated area. Farmers had to clear the trees in order to farm, and the Engels family had fields and clearings where they, where they did their farming. The actual details of the Engels family life are in many ways harsher than the autobiographical Little House books. The first book, Little House in the Big Woods, really captures a feeling of happy prosperity <clears throat> for the Ingalls family, and I do think that's fairly close to the way life actually was for them, although obviously it's idealized. Farming is hard life. But it made for some compelling stories. I got interested in the books as a child, of course. I read them obsessively again and again, and I began to study them to try to understand what made them so good. Woodside hoped to write a biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. I admired her. I was fascinated with her farm columns for the Missouri Ruralist. I wanted to be like her. She had a temper. She was strong. She loved nature. She had a kind of instinctive connection to natural rhythms around the farms where she lived. I wanted to be like that. But the more she read about Laura Ingalls Wilder, her life, and her writing process, the more she came to realize that there was really a second woman behind the Little House books. As I began to study the, the papers, I uh, began to really dig into what papers are left. Uh, I realized that I, I needed to write a book about two women because the, the Laura I admired so much was a constructed character as a result of a collaboration between Laura and her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane. More on that fateful collaboration in a minute. Laura Ingalls and her husband, Almanzo Wilder, moved to the Dakota Territory during the 1880s. They had Rose soon after. 
It was a hard life. The droughts and the kind of natural high desert climate took over pretty soon after the family had gotten there, and they never really had a successful crop. They had a lot of loss, uh, a fire and crop loss, and a baby who died. When Rose was seven, they moved to Missouri and tried to establish a farm. Rose was sort of ashamed that she came from a poor farm family. She uh, felt that her clothes were not as nice as the clothes of the girls in town. She was sent into school on a donkey. She didn't always have shoes. But Rose was a smart kid with a gift for language, and she would become the family's first published writer. She uh, made a name for herself writing these serial profiles of famous people who would come through town. Most of Rose's biographical work centered on the same theme, a person of humble origins whose strength and courage allowed them to overcome poverty and adversity to achieve greatness. And Rose had done pretty well herself to overcome her own hard childhood. She even spent some years in Paris and Europe during the 1920s, like so many other writers of her generation, from Ernest Hemingway to Gertrude Stein. But by the late 1920s, she had returned home to her parents' farm in Missouri. At that point, Rose was living back on the farm and sort of running an informal writer's colony. She had women writing friends come and stay for months at a time. Her mother, Laura, was living in semi-retirement at the time. Then, disaster struck. In 1929, the stock market crashed, and they both lost all their investments. And uh, they were basically desperate to make some money for the family. So Rose said to Laura, why don't you go back to that story of your life thing, and let's see if we can get this published. And so from economic hardship came a tale that was perfect for the Great Depression that followed. Laura quickly set to work. She sat down with uh, several notebook tablets, sort of dime store tablets, and wrote her life story down from start to finish. Laura wrote about living on the open prairie, traveling in covered wagons, encountering wild animals, and more. She wrote constantly, almost 200 pages. Rose took her mother's notes and she uh, edited and condensed and fixed and rewrote and made it into a long magazine piece. Rose always, uh, as she put it, ran them through her typewriter. Uh, That was how she edited Laura. But writing the stories down was only half the battle. Rose tried to sell them to a number of magazine editors. No one would buy it. Rose then went to a party with some old publishing and writing friends of hers at which she met a children's editor who uh, was interested in a portion of the story. So Rose went to work. Rose, without telling Laura what she was doing, took the section from the big woods of Wisconsin, as the family called it. She took the section from the Wisconsin years and she wrote a children's manuscript called When Grandma Was a Little Girl. The editor loved how it turned out. And that was how it started. The first book, Little House in the Big Woods, came out in 1932. It was a great success and readers and the publisher began to ask for more. Initially, Rose and Laura had thought this would stop after one book, but the demand was such that they were asked to keep producing new ones, eight in total. So Laura and Rose were secretly collaborating on these books for uh, 13 years. But they kept their collaboration a secret. 
Few knew the involved role that Rose took in editing her mother's manuscripts. Why? I think that the two women thought that Rose's role should not matter. Rose was in the background. She was helping her mother do this project. And it was also a problem of narration. If Laura and Rose had had both their names on the cover, readers would have been confused over which of the two of them was the main character. And the power of that, the power of it being the true story of Laura's life, with Laura as the author, would have been lost. The American public, suffering through a depression, was captivated by the tales of survival and persistence. There was a raw authenticity to the stories that could not be fabricated. The details of Laura Ingalls Wilder's childhood in the Little House books are fairly authentic, and that's because Laura herself insisted during the collaboration with her daughter on the books that they be as authentic as possible. So the details of life, farming, the way they, um, the way they cured meat, the way they harvested food, uh, the way they packed the wagon, uh, the way they built houses, all that stuff is, is authentic. But Rose Wilder Lane didn't just edit and revise her mother's stories. Gradually, she took a role in shaping their viewpoint and their ideals, even their politics. She started to infuse their pages with her own burgeoning brand of libertarianism. The Little House books became subtle, but very real pieces of political persuasion, and they would help serve as a launching pad for a broader social movement that would ultimately be helmed by the two brothers from the Kansas Prairie who were themselves just children at the time of the book's original publication, Charles and David Koch. That's next on Flashback. Do you have an interesting tale about unintended consequences from history or your own life? Please share it with us by emailing flashback at ozzy.com. That's flashback at ozy.com. As we've seen previously on Flashback, the Great Depression changed a lot of things in America, and so did the response to it by the administration of President Franklin Roosevelt. This is Roosevelt addressing the nation in March 1933. I have no expectation of making a hit every time I combat. What I seek is the highest possible batting average, not only for myself, but for the team. But Roosevelt could not make everyone on the team happy, and a lot of Americans resented his new deal, including Rose Wilder Lane. Christine Woodside again. Rose really hated uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal because she felt that he was uh, trying to make America a socialist country. Rose didn't like the New Deal relief programs for the poor or the new price and supply controls on farming and grain. So that was the the root of it. And this was all during the early 30s when her anger began. And this was also when they were writing the Little House books. Woodside says that as a result, self-reliance became the wilder family business. The Little House books were were celebrating a a simple, self-sufficient, courageous life that was based on Laura's real life. But uh, some of the scenes in, in several of the books were fleshed out to really underscore the idea of freedom and independence of the individual. 
In some of the later books, Rose added details and dialogue to scenes that helped promote this new pioneer spirit. For example, there's a scene in one book, The Long Winter, in which a storekeeper named Loftus wants to overcharge starving townspeople for the last stock of wheat. So Laura's father, Pa Ingalls, tries to reason with Loftus. Mr. Loftus says, that wheat's mine and I've got a right to charge any price I want to for it. And I'm reading right out of The Long Winter. That's so, Loftus, you have, Mr. Ingalls agreed with him. This is a free country and every man's got a right to do as he pleases with his own property. He said to the crowd, you know that's a fact, boys. And he went on, don't forget, every one of us is free and independent, Loftus. This winter won't last forever and maybe you want to go on doing business after it's over. If you've got a right to do as you please, we've got a right to do as we please. It works both ways. So there you are, a free market lesson right in the middle of, um, of a starvation scene on a in a prairie town. This is capitalism, you know. Rose's views on personal freedom and limited government did not just find expression in the Little House books. Rose worked for years on this book that was designed to be her magnum opus called The Discovery of Freedom, Man's Struggle Against Authority. And it was published in 1943, the same year that the last of the Little House book series came out. The book is really a somewhat select reading of the history of Western civilization, one that focuses on moments in the past, like the American Revolution, when people attempted to organize a state that would allow for a wider scope of personal liberty. The book sold almost no copies when it first came out, but it was embraced by a, a group of mainly um, business people who felt that it, it illustrated the, the beauty of capitalism when you're not messing it up. The work became something of a political cult classic. And so the book kind of took on a life of its own beyond the book itself. And today, the libertarian political movement will, will refer to Rose Wilderlane's book, The Discovery of Freedom, as sort of an early Bible of the libertarian movement. And if The Discovery of Freedom was the Bible, then a man named Roger Lee McBride was Rose's main disciple. McBride met the much older writer when he was a teenager in Connecticut. Roger learned free market principles at Rose's knee, and he took her ideas out into the world, um, you know, like a flag um, that he was carrying with him. He inherited everything of Rose's. McBride became a champion of the libertarian movement. He was a genial, somewhat portly gentleman with well-coiffed gray hair and large-rimmed glasses. Here he expands on what that movement means in an episode of the television talk show Firing Line in 1976. Our fundamental belief is that every individual ought to be free to conduct his or her life the way that person sees fit, so long as he or she is peaceful and doesn't impose on others by force or fraud. Roger McBride ran for president in 1976 as the Libertarian Party candidate. He won 0.2% of the popular vote. More on that in a moment. What McBride is perhaps better known for is the television show he created two years before he ran for president. Thanks to McBride, The Little House Books would become an iconic 1970s television show starring Michael Landon as Pa Ingalls. But McBride was not the only libertarian that Rose Wilder influenced. Another was a man named Robert Lefebvre. 
Lefebvre, who had dropped out of college himself, founded a very influential school, Christine Woodside. In the early 1960s, he started a school in Colorado called the Freedom School. It was uh, housed in a log building and people, adults, would go for two-week sessions and, and learn about um, really the extreme end of, of what it would mean to give people full liberty. We're going to have some fun here this week. This is Robert Lefebvre addressing attendees at one of those Freedom School retreats. He's got wavy silver hair with a bushy mustache and is wearing big eyeglasses and a bolo necktie. Lefebvre was quite a character. He had been an actor, a soldier, a traveling salesman, a TV anchorman, and more. I should explain a little bit about myself. As you can tell by my name, uh, Lefebvre, there is some French in there somewhere. And uh, we French are a very volatile people, as you know, and we tend to become explosive and uh, dramatic, and we wave our arms and shout, and I do these things without sometimes knowing that I'm doing them. I really am a very nice fellow, but you will not know that at times. Lefebvre encouraged students to bring sturdy shoes and pack Western wear. In between sessions, they could ride horses, play volleyball, and pitch horseshoes. But that was not the purpose of the Freedom School. The whole purpose of our session is to make use of our minds and to get them into gear, to take an entirely different look at man and the situation that he is in. It wasn't long before Lefebvre's renegade school appeared on the radar of another prominent libertarian. Rose caught wind of the Freedom School, and she was really excited about it, and, but it was struggling financially. So she gave them a big donation. Rose Wilderlane became really involved in libertarian politics. This is Stephanie Sharp, a political consultant from Kansas and the founder of the firm Sharp Connections. Because of the significant income that she had from the Little House royalties, was able to donate quite a bit of money to the Freedom School. Rose Wilderlane's donation helped keep the Freedom School afloat, and she grew more involved in its operation. Robert Lefebvre was so grateful he renamed the school's main log building Rose Wilder Lane Hall in 1962. Rose herself attended the dedication ceremony. Christine Woodside. One of the only recordings of Rose, Rose's voice that, that exists is of her giving a speech at the Freedom School. The speech was called The Scourge of Collectivism. The recording quality is not great, but you can hear Rose cover a number of topics, including communism. From the beginning of known human history, which is about 60 centuries, uh, people have been predominantly communists. Uh, the very early savages are always communists. The libertarian principles articulated at the Freedom School soon started to spread within another group, the Republican Party. The notion was always underlying all this that that people, if left to their own devices, will act in a way that furthers the common good. It's an idea that Ronald Reagan talked about, and Ronald Reagan was enamored of a lot of these ideas, too. And he was very good at spreading them, including via humor. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But it was not just Ronald Reagan who took up the mantle of libertarianism that was first hoisted by Rose Wilder Lane and the Freedom School. 
Two men who have arguably shaped modern American politics more than any other figures were not only familiar with the Freedom School, they were students there. One summer day in the early 1960s, a 20-something young man from Wichita, Kansas, drove up the dirt road that led into the foothills of the Rampart Mountain Range between Colorado Springs and Denver. He saw a compound with a three-story lodge, log cabins, horse stables, and walking trails. It looked like a summer camp. But this was Robert Lefebvre's Freedom School, the mecca for the American libertarian movement, the place that Rose Wilder Lane had influenced with her ideas and saved with her money. The young man, Charles, had heard about the school from his younger brother, David, who had just attended his own two-week session, Christine Woodside. Two of the early students at the Freedom School were Charles and David Koch, if you can believe that. Yes, those Koch brothers. Charles Koch, the chairman and CEO of Koch Industries, and his late brother David Koch became libertarians in their 20s. And Christine Woodside says you can trace those political origins back directly to the Freedom School and Rose Wilder Lane. Remember Roger Lee McBride, the presidential candidate slash television producer who was Rose's political disciple? McBride ran for president uh, as a libertarian in 1976, and the Koch brothers uh, did what they could to campaign for him. And so this is one of the crucial bits of evidence that helps you uh, sort of see the connection that the Koch brothers have back to uh, the Freedom School and the, the ideas. Deep in the archives of the Hoover Library at Stanford, Christine Woodside discovered a letter that Charles Koch had sent out to powerful oil industry executives endorsing McBride for president in 1976. It begins, Dear Rocky Mountain Oil Man, I have been a supporter of libertarian activities since the early 1960s and have found them to be the only effective way to combat the rapidly increasing governmental control over all aspects of our lives. Charles Koch's brand of libertarianism had a very particular source. And so what he meant when he said he had been a supporter of libertarian activities, he meant that he had attended classes at the Freedom School in Colorado. And that, of course, is the school that Rose was so deeply involved with. Rose Wilder Lane died in 1968, but her disciples at the Freedom School, including the Koch brothers, would continue to push her ideas to a broader audience. The Koch brothers uh, stayed involved in the Libertarian Party until the early 80s. In fact, David Koch was the vice presidential candidate on the Libertarian ticket in 1980. Neither Roger McBride nor David Koch had any success on the ballot, but they did succeed at starting a revolution in conservative thought. It is very strong. Um, this branch of thinking in the Republican Party, led, led by these, these early thinkers who had who had solidified their ideas at the Freedom School, this guided the branch of the Republican Party that brought Ronald Reagan to power. After David Koch lost his election, the Koch brothers began to move toward more mainstream political circles and to wield their influence on the conservative free market branch of the Republican Party. Stephanie Sharp. When he was on the ballot as a libertarian candidate, you certainly realized that, that the libertarian party wasn't going anywhere. And so from then, you know, it's pretty easy to look at the Republican Party and say, you know what, if we plug enough money into this thing, we could almost make the party adapt to what we view as Republicanism. And they put a lot of money into it. But the Koch brothers decided to work behind the scenes and not in front of the cameras this time. 
with the Republican Party as an established brand, it was a good training ground, and they could come in and make a significant financial impact. And so they you know, started these Club for Growth and Americans for Prosperity. Thanks to nonprofit political action groups like these and the hundreds of millions of dollars they raised, the Koch brothers went from political fringe role players to Republican Party royalty. But they didn't just raise money. The Koch brothers pumped millions of dollars into a vast network of conservative think tanks, endowed professorships, lecture series, college programs, and more that espoused their same libertarian free market economics beliefs. It was like the Freedom School times a billion. And then, of course, came the piste de resistance of the libertarian movement that Rose Wilder Lane helped create, the Tea Party. More on that when we come back. need a break from the constant cycle to learn something new, to gain new perspectives. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects or pick up a new hobby. I've been enjoying the Great Courses Plus while researching this season of Flashback. Lectures like Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime, History of the Supreme Court, and Battlefield Europe have helped me connect the dots on several stories from history. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited-time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up now through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash O-Z-Y. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, everyone. I'm Mark. I'm Greg. I'm Brendan. And this is a trailer for a new podcast called Get It to Dutch, A Screenwriter's Journey. It's about screenwriting. And a journey. The three of us play aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a hit Hollywood script to famous producer Dutch Huxley. Well, I would say one of us is aspiring and the other two are sort of struggling. Which one of us is aspiring? Well, they're going to have to listen to the podcast. Hmm. But I don't know, and I made the podcast. Well, I made the podcast, and I think you guys were along for the ride. Each week we bring in a script, we read it, and then we give each other notes. And you'll also hear about our adventures navigating the Hollywood uh, system. The show features amazing guests like Tim Robinson, Lily Sullivan, Weird Al Yankovic, and Rob Hubel. Like any great blockbuster, it's filled with heartbreak, adventure, suspense, and just a little tasteful nudity. And some distasteful nudity. Sorry about that, guys. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. 
I had a coupon and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Arizona Director of Americans for Prosperity. We are a group that has uh, got 25 chapters around the, around the country. We're getting more chapters every year, and we are building up a grassroots army in this country. This is Tom Jenny speaking to the Arizona branch of the Tea Party in 2009. A grassroots army to take on big government and the trend toward bigger and bigger government in this country. In the wake of the collapse of the American economy in 2008 and the subsequent government bailouts, it felt to many Americans like the U.S. was on the verge of undergoing a repeat of what happened during the Great Depression that Rose Wilder Lane had experienced. And leaders like Jenny were quick to point that out. So this happened in the 1920s. This government-created bank creates a bubble. The bubble bursts. We have the famous crash of 1929. Uh, so we have a problem that's been created by government. What does government then offer us as a solution to that problem? More government. So you get guys like... You get guys... Crowds like this were forming all across the country. It was the perfect moment to grow an army of new libertarians in America and usher in a new era of limited government. And thanks to the existing network of well-funded organizations that the Koch brothers had spent years cultivating, the Tea Party seemed to expand like magic across the country. It felt as if the Koch brothers had brewed a movement out of thin air. And the Tea Party is back. Close to 40 protests springing up across the country today. Americans sick of government ballots and wasteful spending taking their message to the streets and it's spreading fast. In 2010, thanks in no small part to the Tea Party and the work of groups like Americans for Prosperity, the Republican Party won a landslide victory in the House of Representatives. CNN is now ready to make a major projection. Uh, the Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives. And so the seeds of a movement that had first taken root within the pages of a children's book series and been cultivated in small group seminars in the Colorado mountains had finally borne political fruit almost 80 years later. Christine Woodside. These ideas get deep into your skin, under your skin when you read them as a, as a young person. And uh, many of us who love the Little House books, I find myself, um, I, I consider myself a progressive, you know, and I'm, I'm not registered in any party, I'm a journalist, but the idea of, uh, of having free, of being free and independent, it, it, I like it. The Freedom School seminars and the Little House books spoke to an ideal of courage, perseverance, and liberty that still resonates today. But how would Rose Wilder Lane herself feel about the big government regulations that the Koch brothers and Tea Party have waged war on? I mean, I think she would be really irritated with it. I think she would think that, um, you know, regulations are, are unnecessary and you really just need to assume that everyone's going to do the right thing. Woodside herself is not convinced. I don't see a lot of proof in American history that people naturally do the right thing for either the environment or necessarily the economy. And she recognizes that might put her at odds with both Rose and Laura Ingalls Wilder. 
I'm uncomfortable with the thought that both of these women would probably not like me very much, which makes me a little sad because I like them. <laughs> but um, there you have it. Flashback is written and hosted by me, Sean Braswell, senior writer and executive producer at Aussie. It was produced by Robert Kulos, Tracy Moran, Iorio de Gizua, and Shannon Williamson. Chris Hoff engineered our show. Special thanks to the crew at iHeartRadio Podcast Networks, especially Sophie Lichterman and Jack O'Brien. Make sure to subscribe to Flashback on the iHeartRadio app or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Flashback is the latest podcast from Ozzy, a modern media company producing original TV series, festivals, news, and podcasts for curious people. Ozzy's unique storytelling focuses on the new and the next, whether that's forward-looking news and features, bold new perspectives on TV, or brand new ways of looking at history. For today's lecture note, we look at another big fan of Little House on the Prairie, Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh. As a young man, McVeigh was a huge fan of the frontier television drama that was based on the books. McVeigh's favorite episode? The one where Michael Landon as Pa Ingalls tries to stop the other farmers from rioting when a government tax hike threatens their farms. As the farmers complain about the tax assessor, one of them makes a startling prediction. You just mark my words. Someday they will tax a man for what he earns. An income tax? Yeah. Never happened in a thousand years. Yeah, you just did. To dive deeper, head to ozzy.com slash flashback. That's ozy.com slash flashback. There you can find my other lecture notes from today's episode, featuring extended interviews, links to further reading, and more information on unintended consequences and the ideology of the Little House books, as well as links to other hidden stories from history, uncovered by me and other reporters at Ozzy. need a break from the constant cycle to learn something new, to gain new perspectives. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects or pick up a new hobby. I've been enjoying the Great Courses Plus while researching this season of Flashback. Lectures like Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime, History of the Supreme Court, and Battlefield Europe have helped me connect the dots on several stories from history. Right now, they're giving our listeners a special limited-time offer, a free month of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up now through our special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash O-Z-Y. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Aussie. Hello! 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love comedy movies and Hollywood satire, you're going to want to listen to a brand new podcast called Get It to Dutch. In Get It to Dutch, we play three aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a script to big-time Hollywood producer Dutch Huxley. Each week on the podcast, we perform a movie script right before your ears. It's like going to a movie with your eyes closed. And we have amazing guest stars, including Tim Robinson, Rob Hubel, Lily Sullivan, Jamie Moyer, and Weird Al Yankovic. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you Get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as that 70s show and that 90s show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.